1989, Martin Amis was at the height of his powers and he was the most influential novelist in Britain. His previous book, Money, was perhaps the keynote novel of the 80s and the new one was at least as good as that. Well, now, since then, Martin has published lots of fine and interesting novels and a good deal of trenchant journalism, very good non-fiction. But for my money, he has never bettered London Fields. Now, Martin came trailing a slightly forbidding reputation, although I never found him anything less than charming. Still, I thought I'd better start by tackling this question of being difficult. And this interview is from 1989. You, uh, you hold your books together with a highly disciplined style. I think you're tough with your books. I think you're tough with yourself as a writer. You're terribly hard on your characters and pretty tough with the world. Are you as tough as you write? Um, no. Uh, <laughs> I give the novel everything I have and when I've finished a the novel there's not much left of me. Um, but there's a terrific distinction between the novelist as novelist and the novelist as, as it were, civilian. Um, and in my civilian life, uh, I'm, although I don't seem to give this impression in interviews and so on, um, I'm, I wouldn't say uncannily equable, as John Updike says of himself, but I'm pretty cheerful most of the time and um, polite to people I don't have to be polite to. Um, I'm a great believer in manners being the, the basis of all morality, that um, you, know, you pull up at the zebra crossing uh, to let the mum and the pram go by, and that's how it all begins, thinking about other people and so on. Um, I'm never rude to waiters or secretaries or anyone I have arbitrary power over. So I'm not hard, I'm a you know, softy parent, for one thing. Um, but when you enter your study, your face twists into a hideous leer, like Spencer Tracy in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and suddenly you're you know, your hairs come out of your ears and you become uh, the monstrous or the demonic side of yourself that's allowed out. How do you feel about your image then? Because I've never seen a photograph of you smiling. Well, I, that's, that's partly a, a function of the fact that I hate being photographed. So I'm standing there boiling with hatred at the photographer. So I look, you know, sneering or whatever I look. Um, I'm a bit... I'm a bit bored with my image now. If it's if the if the image you mean, which I think is the case, is one of um, you know, truculent, unfriendly, which, which I never am, and I think you know the only way I can happily justify it to myself my image is that it's the books that have the effect on the interviewer, and they feel that they've been while they've been with me, they've been subjected to a cruel inspection, and go away with some resentment and grudgingness, and that comes out on their typewriters. Although these exchanges are seldom anything but very amiable at the time. At the first sight, this book's about corruption, it seems to me, of uh, values of the world itself, of language, of individuals, whole human race. Is corruption the characteristic of the end of the 20th century? Well, let's think corruption. Um, corruption in the sense of things falling apart, of you know, entropy, of this, this universal tendency towards disorder, um, which we are now feeling on a global scale, I think, that uh, we have corrupted the very atmosphere. Um, we are drowning in our own rubbish, 
um, we are too many. These sort of apprehensions are all coming to a head. Um, and presiding over that corruption is the corruption, the, the moral corruption brought about by the presence of nuclear weapons, is my view. Um, I find a lot of resistance to this view. Um, I think people like to think that nuclear weapons are a kind of optional extra that we have as a cheap fix to prevent conventional war, um, that they don't have any reality for us. I now have nothing but contempt for that view and think that, um, that nuclear weapons are the great issue of our time and that has to be at the top of any agenda for the future and that it does have corrupting effects. There is a trickle down, a loss of authority from, you know, as it might be, parent, teacher, leader, because mega death is out there and in the air. A trickle down even to Keith Talent, one of the characters in your book, who is a spectacularly ignorant man. Um, nothing comes through to him except through this, this tabloid newspaper that you describe as down market of the sun and through television. And yet even he is corrupted. His language is, is remarkably corrupted. Um, it, whenever he speaks, he speaks in, in the clichés of the, 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 the sports pages on the back of his tabloid. Even he is corrupted then by this... Uh... Yes, I mean, it's stretching it a bit, bit to say that, that Keith is corrupted by it. Although I think, you know, I would stand by that. Um, he is... He's, he's a character who has no authentic thoughts, as you say. It's all made up of televisual clichés and you know, um, tabloid clichés. But, but loss of authority um, you know, anywhere is something that Keith is an example of. Yes, he's completely unrestrained. Yeah, and um, also w one thing that comes with wars and with uh, pre-war and post-war situations is, is a heightening of obscenity. Having seen piles of corpses Obscenity comes into the language. And Keith is certainly fully exemplifies all that. I want to talk some more about the books. Uh, London Fields, um, it's constructed as a novel within a novel. Um, there's an American writer who is writing the story as it really happens. Now, he doesn't know the ending until he gets there, any more than we do reading it, but Martin Amis does. Um, what then are you telling us about the relationship between the writer and that that he writes about the author's responsibility. Now, well, this is something I'm far from clear on myself, um, and it doesn't bother me one bit um, when I write, or even in my civilian guise. But it, this worry does turn up again and again in my books as subject matter. Um, I think I think there's no point in tricking the reader or breaking the rules or anything like that unless you can make a point, and unless you can make it comically and enjoyably and adds another dimension to the book. But, um, you know, the, the, the novelist's worry about what he's doing extends from quite obvious things like putting real characters in a book, uh, which I don't much do. Um, but you do tie the book very explicitly to, to our culture. There are references to things that we will all recognize. There are a lot of literary references to very real works of literature and writers. I mean, you, you are making it very explicitly our world, even if it is set slightly in the future. Yeah, it's, it's um, our world extrapolated. Um, 
Is that why it's in the future, or did you need it to be at the end of the century for the per for this entropic uh, um, notion? The millennium has been, you know, beckoning as a subject, um, and it's almost upon us. And in a way, it's a plot device in that I wanted my characters to behave strangely, and the year it's set in, which is never quite named, but is clearly 1999, is called the year of behaving strangely. Um, so I needed it for mundane purposes to get my characters you know, moving around London in the right way. But um, also because it seems to millennium, the millennium brings in all sorts of dreads about end time, you know, the sense of an ending. And uh, I thought they came together. Um, and your characters do behave strangely. There is this woman, Nicholas Six. How do I pronounce that? How shall we pronounce? Seeks. Seeks. Yeah. Nicholas Seeks, who strangely knows what is going to happen to her. She strangely knows that she's going to die at a particular time and that she's going to be murdered. Um, I gather one of the titles you considered was The Murderee. Um, for me, and, and because of those reasons, she's uh, probably the most uncompromisingly degenerate character in the book. Um, can she be redeemed? Um, this this um, quirk of hers, where she believes she knows what's going to happen next, is a, a sort of an illusion that she has, or a delusion, um, brought about by love of power. She's she is, um, you know, uncompromisingly degenerate in a sense. What I wanted to make her terrifyingly intelligent and and ruthless. Um, because she's, she's, I keep wondering why women don't see how simple men are. Um, women are complicated. Um, they have this interplay of thought and emotion that men don't have. Men are dull sods. They go out to work every day. They come home. They worry about money. Um, women, when women are unhappy, they feel ill. You know, it's all, they're much more holistic, if you like. But she has got to the end of men. She's... She's come to the end of their little repertoire and is, you know, they don't interest her anymore. So her, her death is really going out with, in a blaze of glory by, by her lights. And, you know, with the upper-class romantic character, she satirizes love, literary love, with Keith Ta Talent, the tabloid, darts, pub, porn character, she satirizes sex. And with the narrator figure, she satirizes and vandalizes art. So really, she is a, she's a vandal, um, mm. but a frightening and intelligent one who makes a lot of points, I think, as she goes down. Yes, let's hear a passage uh, from the book about her. This is where the narrator or the observer figure, Sam, is, um, get, is debriefing the murderee who's giving him, Nicola, who's giving him an update on what's been going on. He says to her, Nicola, I'm worried about you, as usual, and in a peculiar way, as usual. I'm worried they're going to say you're a male fantasy figure. I am a male fantasy figure, she says. I've been one for 15 years. It really takes it out of a girl. But they don't know that, he says. I'm sorry, I just am. You should see me in bed. I do all the gimmicks men read up on in the magazines and the hot books. Nicola, he says. So they'll think you're just a sick dreamer, she goes on. Who cares? You won't be around for that. 
You neither. I was thinking, you're hard to categorize, even in the male fantasy area. Maybe you're a mixture of genre, a mutant, I went on. I love these typologies. You're not a sex bot, not dizzy enough. You're not a hot lay either, not quite. Too calculating. You're definitely something of a sack artist. And a Matahari, too. And a vamp. And a ball breaker. In the end, though, I'm fingering you for a femme fatale. I like it. Nice play on words. Semi-exotic. No, I like it. It's cute. A femme fatale? I'm not a femme fatale. Listen, mister. Femme fatale a ten a penny compared to what I am. What are you, then? Christ, you still don't get it, do you? I waited. I'm a murderee. We went out walking. We can do this. Oh, what you see in London streets at three o'clock in the morning, with it trickling out to the eaves and flues, tousled water, ragged waste. Violence is near and inexhaustible. Even death is near. But none of it can touch Nicola and me. It knows better and stays right out of our way. It can't touch us. It knows this. We're the dead. Is it then, in any sense, a love story? It's about love, and it, it seems to mock love. Um, but I think it is a love story in that, you know, the satire wouldn't take if love were not seen to be very important, to be, in fact, the only thing that, uh, the only weapon that good has. It's also a very funny book. Um, I was uh, made to laugh enormously by Keith and his religion of darts, also by the child that you wish upon the upper-class, weak character Guy. He has a, a little boy called Marmaduke, who is the most monstrous child in modern literature that I can think of. He's, uh, he's all the worst things about having a baby, and he's all of those things all the time. What, what is Marmaduke about? Well, there are two babies in the book, it ought to be said. That's and true. One is, a, one is a pouting angel and the other is a, you know, a domestic gorilla. Um, and this really is an annotation of my feeling, and I think perhaps the feeling of every parent is that each child is heaven and hell in one tiny little nappy. Um, and it's, I think, very characteristic of the way I go at writing it, that I should have divided them up to the good and the bad, which I tend to do, and, and reach for the most extreme characteristics in both directions. So Kim, Kim is a suffering little girl, asked to endure quite a, quite a deal of hardship in her first year on the planet. Um, and Marmaduke, who's this pampered um, little princeling, is... Um, a hideous exploration of the male principle in that um, he is all violence and viciousness and uh, you know, fouls everything he touches. But, and of course children are the future and these are the two ways ahead. And you know, I do feel that it's time the women had a turn or that we, we had a more, a more feminine approach. I don't mean the bloke that rules us now, Margaret Thatcher, I mean a, a real woman. Um, but I have to admit that once this premise was established in the book, it was just the comedy that provided the momentum. That and it does provide a great <laughs> deal of momentum. It's extremely funny. Um, it's, it worried me, though, that um, Kim, at the end, is, is uh, about the future, and the future is about the children. I wasn't sure whether there was any future after 
Oh, well, I mean, it's been said that the book is very pessimistic, but um, in fact, the millennium is survived. Um, and in the closing pages, there's a sort of feeling that, that even the weather is stabilizing slightly, that the odd cosmic effects or um, solar effects that had been troubling the planet, the odd tilt of the sun, the, the full eclipse, um, this has all been survived, and although not all the characters have made it, uh, the future is there, and the very the, the act of murder is, you know, very partially redeemed by the fact that it's done in a sense for the little girl, in that her future is assured, um, is made safer. Um, so I think I think there's a I would call it a not a happy ending, but a a modulated. Uh, pessimism at the end. Well, it's five pages of modulation out of 465 pages of pessimism. I want to know about Keith and his darts. This is the other great comic device in the book. Um, Keith, it's, I said before that it's, it's a religion to him. Um, what, what are you getting at with that? Well, again, Darts turned out to be quite rich in, in imagery, you know, arrows and Cupid's arrow and the earth seen as a dartboard, you know, with various missiles poised to be hurled at it. Um, but really it was, it just chose itself for its comedy. Um, I wanted Keith to have an aspiration and I thought it would just be wonderfully comic and appropriate if his aspiration turned out to be the crudest form of human aspiration I've yet come across which is the hurling of a piece of tungsten at a cork board over a distance of eight feet, or whatever it is. Whatever it is. Um, and I've noticed in my you know, researches, i.e. my hanging around in pubs, that um, as soon as you get someone talking about his darts, he's plunged into self-pity. Um, it's almost a sort of tearful uh, release of emotion when the word darts is mentioned. And it's... It's also, uh, you know, it has its analogies with battle and the throwing of spears, but it's comically degraded. It's, it's what the Brits do now that they no longer have an empire. You know, they throw these little, a 20 stone man throws a 20 gram bit of metal across the room into a board. And feels passionate about it. Yeah. If, if anybody is rude about uh, Keith's favourite darting pub, Keith will tearfully beat him up. That's right, and he'll, you know, you don't mess with a, a man's darts, you know, not with his darts, you know. There's that kind of feeling, which I, is evident enough from post-match interviews on TV, of course, which, which Keith soaks up. Uh, Jockey Wilson, you know, wipes away a manly tear to lift his crown. Do you like Keith at all? I'm mad about Keith, yeah. Actually, my brother was was talking to me about the book, and I said, God, you really adore Keith, don't you? And he said, and he just shrugged and said, he made me laugh. And I think, you know, we'll forgive everything. He also everything. is not troubled by by uh, moral questions that, that, that hamstring the rest of us. He, he's, um, he, he's not focused, but when he goes in a direction, nothing troubles him about it. That's right. I mean, I have a a sort of well-off and attractive and nice character who's rather exasperating in the book, and I have this nightmare called Keith Talent. But um, I gave Keith the confidence, and although he has an anti-talent for morality, he instinctively does the immoral thing without a qualm. Um, but I think we do marvel at that. We, 
we're amazed by confidence, especially confidence that coexists with such you know, limitations as he has. Why is it called London Fields? Um, lots of reasons. I mean, I don't think it's as mysterious a title as some people have found it. There's a place called London Fields in East London that I used to pass once a fortnight on my way to the printers when I worked on the New Statesman. And it, and it always touched and desolated me to see this little railway sign, London Fields. And I thought this is a contradiction, that uh, London used to be fields. It could never be fields again. There's that feeling behind it. There are feelings of battlefields. There are feelings of force fields, fields of observation, um, you know, fields, electromagnetic fields, as it were. These characters are all giving off a strong charge, and they, and they have a, like the atom, they, are, they don't really exist except as a set of relationships and attractions and repulsions. That's the feeling I had behind the title. Martin Amos, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. That was Tim Haig Reads Books, presented by Tim Haig. Tim Haig Reads Books is a Green Shoot production. More details can be found at www.green-shoot.com or Tim can be contacted on tim at green-shoot.com.